If I could do the Drew translation of the Bible, I would say, bad love is better than no love at all. Now, to prove to all of you that this is a concept that you're familiar with and that operates in your life, that, that sometimes bad love is better than no love at all in your lives, I'm going to need a little bit of crowd participation here. I'm going to ask a question, and I want everyone to answer honestly. Can you do that? Some of you are like, what is he going to ask? Very personal, very exposing, very vulnerable question, okay? Do you all have Taco Bell around here? How many of you have eaten at Taco Bell? Raise your hand. Okay, higher than that, because if you really have Yokiero Taco Bell, then you really want to raise your hand high. So high, high hand if you've ever eaten at Taco Bell. And not everyone is raising their hand. I see this kid right over here. He's like, you've never had a chalupa? Who hurt you is what I want to know. Um, okay, I'm going to widen the net. If you've ever received a meal that came in a brown paper bag through the window of a car, raise your hand. Then you all know that bad love is better than no love at all because none of you are looking at the, the gleaming bell or the golden arches or, let's face it, Arby's, and thinking this is a good choice. You, none of you think this. Instead, what happens when we get food somewhere like that is that we have a hunger, and that hunger is dictating our behavior. It's, it's making sure that we don't do a healthy choice Instead, we're taking the easy choice, or we're taking the convenient choice, we're taking the choice that we know we can get fed right now, we know it'll be somewhat tasty, we know it's relatively inexpensive, and the need that we feel, the hunger is going to get met. But we also know this is not a healthy choice, right? No one here is looking at the Taco Bell or McDonald's and going, I think this is organic. No one is doing that. No one is thinking this is going to be good for you. And inevitably, we all know that about an hour-ish after eating something like that, if it's McDonald's, you get the McHangover. Anyone else? Yeah? Yes. Thank you back there. If you get Taco Bell, you get El Regretto. If you, if you, you know, whatever it is, we have something that happens in our life and we're like, this was not the best choice. For me, it's gas. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a very vulnerable speaker. I'm going to tell you the vulnerable facts of my life. If I eat Taco Bell, my wife kicks me out of our room. That's just how it goes. Because she does not like to be, you know, fumigated in the middle of the night. And that is the consequence of Taco Bell. But I digress. Why do I share this? Because when we have a void in our life, a void does not want to stay empty. Do you know that's a truth in physics that a vacuum does not want to stay empty? It wants to be filled with something. In fact, if it's true for the physical world, it's true for our soul and it's true for our spirit because God made the physical world to display the characteristics of the spiritual, of the invisible. He's given us the visible to understand the invisible. And if it's true for our body, if my hunger will not be denied, I'm going to meet it somehow in my physical body, then it's true for my soul and it's true for my spirit. So I grew up in a little town in central Washington, just little little town. There's not much there. There's there's. Do y'all you know, have treetop apple juice here in Minnesota? No. Yes. No. There's mixed messages. I don't trust any of you now. You do have apple juice though, right? Okay. So there's a brand of apple juice. Actually, there's like five brands of apple juice that all come from my hometown because there are apple orchards and cows, and that's about it in my town. Not a, a, a lot else going on. I grew up in this little town. I grew up Christian. I remember getting saved at four years old. 
in the nursery of the church that I was going to. And I don't know what it is about church nurseries, if it's in the bylaws in the 80s, but every church nursery was decorated like Noah's Ark. (laughs) Why is that? I just want to understand why an apocalyptic moment in world history where God has wiped out all of humanity and all creatures except for two of each kind is what we did, like, decorate the children's room in. (laughs) Here's a beautiful story, young Jimmy. It's about death. And rainbows, you know, it's like, I don't quite understand. But I do remember getting saved. I remember the message that, uh, that the salvation message that I received was, you're a horrible sinner and you need a savior. And I did feel that. I felt that. And I don't know what it was that in that particular day made me feel like a sinner that needed Jesus at four years old. It could have been a number of things. Could have just recently stolen a cookie out of the cookie jar. I had a lot of experience with that still do, as you might tell. But um, that was a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that if you're too serious. You're like, he is fat. I mean, just like, just come on. Or it might be that I have, I have an identical twin brother and something about having an identical twin brother just makes you want to sin a lot because you have the evil twin that's trying to pull you into things all day long. I am not the evil twin. I will say, uh, tell you this right now. My brother is the evil twin. He's even in my phone as evil twin. When he calls, that's what comes up. Evil twin and the theme music to Psycho. That's what comes up. So I don't know what it was, but I felt the need for a savior. And I knew from what my teacher was telling me that Jesus loved me and he redeemed me from my sins. And for me at four years old, this was very personal. This wasn't my parents' faith that I was making my own. This was mine. And so when I got into kindergarten... I was a little evangelist. Like, I was. I was. You laugh, but I was. And I'll tell you my sophisticated method of evangelism in kindergarten is I would look at my little friends and I'd go, do you know Jesus? And they'd be like, no. And I'd say, oh, you're going to hell. And the revivals that you can lead on the big toy when you're threatening kindergartners with hell is Remarkable! I had so many kids got saved. I don't know why I was not the next Billy Graham. But <laughs> I did actually do this. Like, this is a real story. This is, not, this is not just me making a joke. I actually did that to people. And I share that because I want you to know that my faith was really important to me. So it, it was important to me. God's word was important to me from the time I was very young. Now, we, you are in this series talking about the void, so we have some void to get through. But I want to set a context for the void because what I'm going to share with you today is a message that you're not going to hear from culture. And in fact, some of you are going to not believe me because of what we've been told in culture. And so I, I need to set it up a little bit. You're going to go on this journey with me? Yes? yes. That's such a good crowd. Thank you. So I want you all to think back to grade school. For some of you, that is a real short trip. Hello, no Taco Bell. I see you. For others, it's a much longer trip, Mike. Much longer trip. But if you can think back to like first, second grade, girls in the room, first, second grade, think about it. Do you have it in your head? Do you have the experience? What did all boys have in first and second grade? Thank you. Cooties. Yes. 
I'm going to tell you the truth. I can be in a seminary talking to doctoral students. I can be in a denominational meeting talking to the oldest, crustiest leaders of the church in the whole wide world. I can be in a youth group. I can be at a prison and I can say, what did all boys have in grade school? And within two seconds, someone is going to say, cooties, because it's true. Because in grade school, when you're relating, the girls, you don't want to relate to the boys. You're like, boys, cootie spray, you know, and like, boys, if you are trying to relate to a girl, it's, you know, you don't really, but if you kind of like the girl, it's more like, hi, you know, it's like, that's kind of the extent of relationship at that age. And, you know, guys, you have these, like, no girls allowed club, you know, in this sort of situation, and the girls are like, boys have cooties, and it's, you're separated. It's like Moses has separated the grade school and all the girls part that way and all the boys part that way. And there's a relational developmental dynamic that's being displayed in that, which is really important for us to understand. You see, when God designed us, he designed us with the need to connect with the same before we start connecting with the different. And every one of you in here bear the image of God, but you bear it uniquely in your gender. So if you're a guy, you bear the image of God in a way that displays God's image uniquely as a guy. And if you're a girl, you display the image of God uniquely as a girl. And in those ages, you're trying to figure out what that means by relating to other girls or other guys, both your age and both higher, you know, older ages, because you're trying to figure out your identity. And you do that by hanging out with the same But what happens if you're not able to connect with the same? What happens if you have a a, a breakdown in communication? So when I was a kid, like, I was already yelling at people, telling them they were going to hell, which made me the weird one. But I also had other issues. Um, And they were not my fault. I'm going to tell you this right now. I am dramatic. Have you noticed? I'm here all week. I will get you. Um, I was the weird one, but I also was growing up in a family that was, was pretty broken and I didn't know it. Because when we're growing up, we, we kind of think what we're experiencing is normal because it's all we know. But what I didn't realize was my parents and their marriage was a mess and my, it was, there was so much pain under the surface and so much brokenness. And one of the ways that this reflected is that my dad was a workaholic. So he worked all the time. He worked like three jobs. And he provided really well for our family, but he didn't provide himself. He was never there. And so me as a little kid, I'm looking for identity. I'm looking for someone to relate to. And the people that were in my life that were the most consistent people in my life were my grandma and my mom. Now, I don't know about your grandma or your mom, but my grandma was not big with football. My grandma was not big with sports at all. In fact, my grandma, no, no. My grandma baked. That's what my grandma did. She baked, she cooked, she did those things. And when I was hanging out with her, being watched by her, this was what I was learning. Now, a lot of the guys my age, they had their dads. They were throwing football, they were throwing the baseball, they were doing the things, the guy things, the things that the other guys wanted to do. But I wasn't learning any of that. I was learning how to bake and how to cook, which, you know isn't a problem necessarily, but it doesn't leave you with a lot of ways to connect. So like on the playground, first grade, 
guys, Drew, do you want to come play football with us? No, I do not, but creme brulee. You know, it's not relatable on the playground. You know, Drew, do you want to, do you want to go hunting? No, but I will saute that deer for you. It's got a good sear. No, no, no way to relate. I had no way to relate to the same. And so what happens in, in the absence of a need being met, like I said, shared before, and like you all testified to the fact, a hunger will not be denied. It's going to be met rightly or wrongly, but it will not be denied. If we have a need for identity and a need for relationship with the same so that we know who we are and how we fit in the world, that need does not go away. It's going to be met rightly or it'll be met wrongly, but it will not go away. And for a lot of people, that need for identity starts getting met in, in some pretty destructive ways. You know, so we can look at many different expressions of this in culture. The reason we have gangs that happen in like, you know, big cities and small cities and all cities. The reason we have these groups of people that get together and, and collectively form a group identity is because they're lacking that sense of identity. They're lacking that sense of knowing where they fit in the world. So they find places that can tell them where they fit. Does that make sense so far? Anyone relating to this so far? Like, how many of you go try to find the people that you feel comfortable with, that feel like you resonate with in their personality, their likes, their interests, their fashion, whatever? Raise your hand real quick. So you understand, you get it. And for those who are not raising their hand, liar, <laughs> Jesus sees you. No, no, don't, don't, don't receive that. That was bad. Let's not receive that. But he does. So, um, so I was growing up with a very big lack of this identity. And the people in my life that were pouring into me were, were strong women. So that left me feeling really out of place in my own body and in my community. I had no sense of connection with the guys around me. And so when the guys would go and do their thing, like, oh, we're going to play sports, I'd be alone didn't want to hang out with the girls because I'm not a girl, but I didn't feel like I belonged with the guys. So I was left pretty much without a place. And that's, you know, when we, when we sit with a, an emptiness or a void, the enemy likes to exploit those opportunities in our lives. Because as the scripture says, he, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. And honestly, the places that Satan really has the most authority and the opportunity in our lives to really truly begin to manipulate our heart is in those places of unmet need because they don't go away. They demand to be filled and the enemy likes to give us counterfeits that satisfy for a season but ultimately end up hurting us. So in my grade school years, this really looked like a lot of just feeling like I didn't belong, feeling like I didn't fit in the world of men. Now my, my name is Andrew, which means strong and manly, which is really ironic why are you laughing? It's so hurtful. I mean, it felt really like a cosmic joke to me for a long time because I didn't feel like I belonged in the world of men. Well, by the time you hit like middle school, things start getting funky. How many of you are in middle school? Are things getting funky? You're like, yes. 
They get funky for a couple reasons. Number one, the stakes go up. For a lot of people, your, your sense of identity in your, in your own skin is getting a little bit more, you know, solidified, so you start moving towards the opposite. Like, I remember that, that first middle school awkward dance. Yeah, mm, that, that was the, uh, the 2020s version of testify was what that was. Mm-hmm. So I remember the middle school dance, all the guys were over here, all the girls were over here. Eventually, one lone gazelle kind of went to the middle, and then another person went to the middle, and they did that real awkward slow dance that isn't really... Anyone relate to this? Yes? Yes, thank you. Thank you for being... Testify! Thank you. And the reason why we hit that in, in middle school area, this is something that we call puberty. And do you know what happens in puberty in adolescence? Hormones. I'm not sure what to do with what just happened there. But I affirm you in your solid identity. Good job. You are a man. Puberty hits and hormones hits. Do you know that hormones hit us at... There's an increase in our hormones during puberty of 600%. And it's not like an IV, like a slow drip that's measured. It's it's more like a werewolf under a full moon is how this works. So you're fine in algebra. You're like, "Mm, algebra, common core is cool. And then you're like, I'm on my own... You know, business. And you're just, you know, the hormones hit and you don't know what to do. Because... You're going through this time where you're moving out of your comfortable, the same relationships, and you're starting to be awakened to the opposite. But again, what happens if that cup of relating to the same never gets filled? The need does not go away. It'll be met rightly or it'll be met wrongly, but it will not go away. Now, I just want to make this quick disclosure As I share the rest of my story, I want you to know something. There is no one plus one equals the struggle that I'm going to share with you. There's a lot of different dynamics that play into why people struggle with different things. So so don't use my story as a formula for this. But I will say that in all the years that I've met with people and talked with people who struggle like I have struggled, there's common threads, which is why I'm sharing these themes with you. But for me, right about 13, 14 years old, The human hunger, the need was not going away. My need to connect with the same. It'll be met rightly or it'll be met wrongly, but it will not go away. And so at 13 years old, my need to connect with the same started manifesting itself in a struggle with my sexual identity. I was gay. I did, I was not attracted to girls. I was attracted to guys. I began recognizing this struggle coming up at about 13 years old, and it scared the crap out of me. Because I knew what the church taught about homosexuality. And, and the concept of what it is to be gay was not foreign to me. My uncle is gay. I grew up my entire life knowing and loving gay people. I knew that if I identified as gay, that my parents would still love me because they still love my uncle. I did not fear rejection from my family. I didn't want to be gay. I didn't want these feelings. I didn't want this struggle. I loved Jesus and I wanted to follow Jesus. And in the scriptures, 
behaving in that manner was outside of the will of God. But no matter how much I tried to pray, no matter how many scriptures I tried to memorize, no matter how much I tried to resist, this struggle did not go away. How many of you have ever been on a diet before? Or had to watch what you're eating for some reason or another? So raise your hands higher, because I can't, you know, I'm, I'm old, so I need to see higher. Okay, so most of you. How many of you have ever just missed a meal and thought, I need food right now? You know that feeling when you're not getting fed, but the hunger's screaming at you? That feeling, that feeling of demand for the need to be met is the same reason why so many people in our world will say, well, I, I tried to pray away the gay and it didn't work. Because they're trying to pray for relief of a symptom of a need that hasn't been met. And God will no sooner take away that symptom of that need than he would make it so that none of you have to eat food. You're designed to eat food. You're designed to need food. It's like if you all decided you didn't need to breathe anymore, that would not last very long. You would either die or you would breathe because a need will not be denied. And so for years I prayed and I prayed and I prayed because I viewed this struggle through one lens and that was you're a horrible sinner and you're, you're so horribly broken and God's angry at you for this. And, and so I tried and I tried and I tried to perform my way into healing or to pray my way into healing or to memorize scripture so that I could be rid of this and it just never went away. How many of you have ever had a struggle in your life that you prayed that God would take from you and he didn't? So I began to reach a conclusion that was wrong in that. And I think a lot of us reach a conclusion like this with that similar struggle where I began, because I was praying and praying and praying, I reached about 18 years old and it now had been six years-ish, five, six years of we're trying to resist this and trying to pray and trying to deny this and it would never go away. And so finally I, I got really angry with God and I was like, God, I've tried so hard, so hard to, be, to honor you with my life, to resist this, to be healed of this, to be delivered of this. And I've prayed and I've prayed and nothing has changed. I can only conclude one of three things. Either number one, you don't care about me and you're not listening or number two, you're not able to change this in me. Maybe all of culture is right. Maybe I was born this way. Maybe, maybe it's impossible to change. Maybe I shouldn't try. Maybe you can't change. Maybe you made me this way. Or maybe you're, you're good with it. But either way, this isn't changing. And I said, you know, Lord, I've, I've, I've tried and tried and tried to love you, and I've tried to feel loved by you, but... I, d I don't. I don't feel loved. And I don't feel like there's any answer here. So I, I said, you know what, God? If I have a chance to be loved and to feel loved, I'm going to take it. Because your love sucks. It's a very little bold prayer to the Lord. You know, it's, 
It's an interesting conclusion to reach that you think that because God isn't answering your prayer, he can't do something about it or that he's okay with it or, or whatever it is. That's just, that's the only options I felt like I had left. And so when I made this bold statement to God, like, well, if I have a chance to be loved, I'm going to take it because your love sucks. I, you know, I lived in, in this small town in Washington where all the apple juice and cows come from. It's not like there was a lot of openly gay people in my town. I really, truly just was angry, and I didn't expect that there was going to be anything that would come of that, that time yelling at God. But again, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour, and he's an opportunist, which means that he takes those opportunities to exploit our vulnerabilities. And within one week of that prayer, I met a guy at church. At my church. That was new to our church, so I thought, oh, he's new. I should reach out to him and and make friends with him so he'll have a friend. The truth is, honestly, is I was attracted to him. And so I pursued a friendship with him, and we, we struck up a friendship, and within two weeks of that friendship starting, we were hanging out one night at his apartment, and he said, hey, I need to share something with you. I've never told anyone else this, but I, I, I struggle with homosexuality. I think I might be gay. I actually have been in a relationship with a guy, and he just shared his whole story with me. And in my heart, I was like, holy crap, this could happen. There's an opportunity to feel loved. Because this person knows exactly how I feel. And this person won't judge me. And this person won't reject me. What if I share my secret with him? What will happen? So I did. I said, man, I, I, I struggle with that too. And we shared our stories a little bit and nothing happened that night, but it only took about two weeks for our friendship to turn into a sexual relationship. And so I began living a double life. Like a lot of people desperate for love and desperate in their needs begin to do when the Lord doesn't seem to answer the prayer and there's no help and no options and secrecy is king, I begin to live a double life. And I'm going to be honest with you and I don't think that we say this enough in church, but sin really does satisfy for a season or else we wouldn't do it. Like whatever sin struggles you guys have, you do it for a reason. You do it because there's a reward to it. And if there wasn't a reward to it, we wouldn't do it. But the problem is, is that that reward never lasts. It never delivers the promises it promises to deliver. It doesn't fulfill long-term because it can't. Because, you see, when the Lord designed us with our needs, he designed us with the perfect way to meet those needs. And anything outside of his will, always, it will do just the same thing that Taco Bell will do. This is going to be theologically deep, so pay close attention. Sin will do exactly the same thing that Taco Bell will do. It'll satisfy for a moment. It'll taste good on the lips. It's really easy and convenient to get. And it will make you fat, give you gas, and eventually kill you, like all sin does. (laughs) You can quote me on that. (laughs) No, it, it just has very negative effects on us. And although it seems like the right thing in the moment, the more we get into it, the more we recognize that sin actually is destroying us. And for me, this took about four or five months in this relationship 
because it went from a relationship that felt very gratifying to one that felt very erosive and painful for me. And I began getting very terrified that people were going to find out. Because, again, I loved Jesus, and I was, I was doing all this. And Jesus was not letting me off the hook. You know, he wasn't condemning me. He wasn't yelling at me. He wasn't accusing me. Literally, the Holy Spirit would, in, would intrude in my thought life in the moments where I least expected it. How many of you have ever been in the shower and the Lord starts to talk to you? How dare, Lord, how dare. That is me time. That is private time. That is vulnerable time. Don't look, Lord. No. It's just seems not kind from the Lord to do that. And I remember being in the shower, and I remember the Lord simply just saying this very, very gentle rebuke to my heart. And he said, Drew, if this relationship is so good, why are you hiding it and lying about it? And I thought, crap. You're right, Lord. It took me another couple months before I finally, like, I didn't confess this struggle. I broke off my relationship and I hid that I had done this for another two years. And then two years after that, finally confessed to my youth pastor and his wife. I was now at this point 21 years old. And I'd been carrying this, this struggle for seven years of my life. And I remember sitting with my youth pastor and I knew that the second that I said what I had struggled with, I knew that they were going to reject me because all I ever heard from the church was condemnation when it came to homosexuality or transgenderism or any of the LGBTQ spectrum. All I ever heard was condemnation. I never heard redemption. And I was sitting on the couch with my youth pastor and I could not bring myself to say the words because I was so afraid of how I'd be rejected if I told the truth. Anyone ever feel like that? Raise your hand if you've ever felt like that. I want to tell you something. You can never know unconditional love until the other person knows your condition. There will always be something, if we're hiding and in secrecy, there will always be something that the enemy will whisper into your ear. If they knew what you've done or what you struggle with, they would not love you and they would reject you. You can never know the depth of unconditional love until, you, until your condition is known, which is why in the book of James it says, confess your sins to one another and you're healed. We confess to God, he forgives us immediately, but it doesn't heal us. We confess to one another, we get secrecy out of the equation, we let our state be known, and we can actually experience the unconditional love of God demonstrated through the body of Christ because we're known. So as I sat there on that couch for two hours, I could not say the words. So James, James, my youth pastor, he finally got a little bit, I maybe annoyed or tired, I don't know. Needed to move this along a little bit. So he opened up his Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And if you've never heard this passage, it in the gay community is known as one of the six clobber passages in the Bible. One of the six verses in Scripture or passages in scripture that specifically address homosexual behavior and that the gay community has labeled the clobber passages because these are the verses of the Bible that the Christian community uses to condemn and attack the gay community. And the second he started reading it, I knew exactly where he was going and I knew that he knew. 
It starts very cheerfully like this. Do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And I thought, they know. Now there's a long list of sins in this passage that it says, do not be deceived. Neither the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the gossips, nor the swindlers. I mean, a long list of sins that honestly, if you honestly evaluate those sins, every single person in this room finds himself somewhere in this list. But that verse, that passage has only, in my experience, ever been used to condemn one sin on that list, and that is homosexual offender. I've never heard a message about gossips that focused on 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Never heard a message on pride, gluttony, or, or you know, cheating, or slander, or any of these things. Only homosexuality. And verse 10 ends after this long as the sins it says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he finished that verse. He said, Drew, is your sin in this list? And I said, yeah. I knew he knew. And I knew his wife, Amy, knew. And so she said to me, then after I said, yeah, she goes, oh yeah, we know. We've known for two years. And she named the person that I'd been in relationship with. She named when it ended Like she had all the details. And I could not get through my head that they knew for this long. Because in my mind, if they knew what I had done, they would reject me. So I looked at her and I said, no, you didn't know. I mean, you know now, good good guess. Big shock, ah, you know. But you couldn't have known. Because you never would have loved me. You never would have invited me into your home. You never would have, you guys, they had me in their home like four nights a week. They'd made me the assistant director of youth ministry. I was with them all the time. And for two years, they never said a word. I'm like, there's no way that you've known because if you had known, you would have rejected me. And then James said something that changed the trajectory of my life. He said, Drew, of course we knew, but we love you. And we wanted you to feel safe enough to tell us yourself. I couldn't compute that. And then he said, do you want to hear the rest of the passage? I said, there's a rest of the passage to that? Like, it doesn't end with you're going to hell? Again, I've not grown a lot in my sophistication of theology. You're going to hell was still what was playing in my head. He said, let me read you verse 11. Verse 11 says this, but that's what some of you were. But you were washed. And you were justified and you were sanctified by the spirit of our God, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He said, Drew, do you know what justified means? I said, no, I don't really know what that means. He goes, it's just just if you'd never sinned. He goes, I don't know how to help you with this. I don't know how to cure you of this struggle. I don't think you can be cured of this struggle. I don't know what to do for you. All I know is that 2,000 years ago, God saw fit to include in the scripture that some of the Corinthians were gay, but they're not that way anymore because of Jesus. I know that that's probably not an easy message to hear in our culture because we're told over and over again. I mean, how many of you heard it? You're born this way. How many of you heard that? It's genetic. How many? No? Again, raising your hands higher, I'm going to get that volleyball and I'm going to start playing the game myself and just three hit all of you. You've heard it, right? 
it was so solidified in my head that to hear the scripture say, this is what some of them were, but they're not this anymore because of Jesus. Let me say something to you. Do you guys believe that Jesus redeems us from our sin? Yeah? Do you believe that Jesus can heal the sick? Do you believe he can raise the dead? Do you believe that Jesus and, and God and the Holy Spirit in partnership created the entire world, the entire cosmos? Do we believe that? Then why don't we believe that he can change someone's sexual orientation? Why does that feel like it's too big for God? The God who created everything in the cosmos, the God who made us on purpose for purpose, the God who knows every moment of our struggle and every moment of our lives and exactly what got us to where we were, why do we not believe that that powerful God is not more powerful than our sexuality? That's wrong thinking. Now, just hearing that verse did not fix things for me. It gave me a lot more freedom. I was no longer in secrecy. And to be quite honest with you, the, even the thought that God could redeem and restore my heart started shifting my identity a little bit. Suddenly, I didn't think of myself as gay. I thought of myself as struggling with this. And yet, that isn't who I am because God redeems me. Does that make sense? Like, you are not what you do. Your behavior, your, your past your feelings, those don't define you. There's only one being in the entire cosmos that has the right to define you, and that's the one who made you. Do you know that honesty and authenticity are two separate things? They're not the same thing. You know, our culture often says, oh, I just need to be my authentic self. Do you know what authentic actually means in the original Greek? It means true to the original design or intent as intended by the author. Authenticity. To be authentic is to be what God actually intended for you to be. To be honest is just to tell what's going on in your life. They're not the same thing. So I begin to approach my life and my world with this idea of like, God, if you have a different thought in your head of who I am, then you tell me. And in the interest of time, because there's never enough time for a long story, the Lord began transforming my life over a period of about five years. And it was really hard and painful as I began to understand that there were places in my life that were in need of love and identity, and I had filled them with the wrong thing for a long time. It was as if I had been eating Taco Bell my whole life, and now I was 100 pounds overweight. You can't just decide not to eat Taco Bell anymore and be skinny and fit. If that were true, I would look a lot better right now. <laughs> Amen. Can I get a witness? Yes. Now, if you, if you want to experience transformation, you have to actually begin to apply health and purpose and work to transform your life. If it's true for the body, it's true for the soul. At any rate, long story short, after about three, four years, five-ish years, four and a half years of this intentionally long process of like dealing with my struggles and dealing with my pain and dealing with all the abuse I experienced as a kid and dealing with all the rejection I experienced as a kid and beginning to learn how to meet my needs in right ways and not wrong ways, I got to this place where I felt like I was neutral. Like, not gay, definitely not straight. Kind of a good, healthy bachelor to the rapture. You know, like, beam me up, Jesus. I'm good. That's what I felt like I was at. 
I did not believe that God could transform my sexuality. I believed he could develop self-control in me, and I believed that he could bring some relative forgiveness and healing to the broken places in my life, but I didn't believe that, number one, I could change my affections, or number two, if I did, anyone would ever want me. But then I met this girl, and I'm going to tell you the truth on something. Some of you are right in the midst of puberty right now. To you, I say, may the odds be ever in your favor. But <laughs> let me tell you this little thing. It's a terrible thing to have to go through puberty twice in one lifetime. Because at 24 and a half years old, I met this woman, Suzanne. And I thought I was back in middle school. How many of you ever passed that note? Do you like me? Check the box. Yes. No. Perhaps. Anyone? I felt like I was right back in that place. There was this girl. And uh, long, long, long story short, we've been married now for 18 years and have three incredibly cool daughters. Yes, yes, clap for my children. It's amazing. You know, having daughters makes me struggle with men very differently than I did in the past. In the past, it was an in-the-closet sort of struggle. Now it's a shotgun in the closet sort of struggle. <laughs> My oldest daughter is almost 16 years old. She's beautiful. She's amazing. She will never date anybody. <laughs> I have decreed it. None of my girls shall. I had a friend who said, well, Drew, they need to get married someday. I said, they're married to Jesus. <laughs> I said, Drew, you, got, you can't do that. That's dysfunctional. I said, whatever. Shut up. So's your face. And then he said, well, come on, Drew, you gotta, like, what man will ever be good enough for your daughter? So I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> My daughters do not agree, but that's okay. I sure, I, I don't share that to, to, like, give you proof that I'm different. But what I will say this, because anybody can live a double life, and plenty of people do. I share that because something in my life that I thought was impossible and I had no desire for at one point in my life, Jesus has so radically transformed me that not only is it possible, it's what I wanted and what Jesus was able to give me. Now, when I was 14, I could have never imagined that. And I know that it's sometimes it's very difficult sometimes when you're in the middle of your worst struggle to hear someone who's like on the other side of that struggle be like, look, it's possible, look at me. That doesn't really help you in the midst of the pain that you might be walking through or the intensity of what you're walking through. But what it does do is say this, the author and perfecter of our faith will not stop working in our lives. It isn't, when we come to Jesus, no matter what our struggle and our history is, it's not, well, I'll give him, I'll give him a good year and if he turns my life around, I'll believe. No. Jesus takes our whole life over the course of our whole life to transform us into his image. And that's his promise. That's, that's his goal, is to transform us into his image, to make us more and more like Christ from glory to glory to glory until the day of his return. And no matter what your struggle is or what your history is or what has happened to you or what people have told you about who you are or what even the entire world is telling you is possible, that does not compete with the God who is relentless to conform us into his image, to love us into his kingdom, to restore us into what he intended us to be to begin with.
He's a good God. And there is no void in our life so big, so intense, so broken, that God cannot meet the need and restore us to right function and health because he's a good God. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, you know me. I could talk for hours about how good you've been to me. I could talk for hours about all that you delivered me from and all the things that you revealed about your heart to me, but I don't have, there's never enough time, Lord. So, Father, do this for your children today. Whatever their hearts are wrestling with, whatever it is that the enemy has intended to destroy them, maybe they they be so convinced of your love and of your character that that they know that they know that they know that there is nothing There's nothing so broken you can't fix. There's not a need so great you can't meet it. There's not a mistake so powerful that that it can define us, you define us, God. And in fact, Lord, you so often delight in taking the very things that Satan has intended to destroy us and turning those around, not only for our benefit, benefit, but for your glory. So, Father, this is what I pray for your sons and your daughters here today. May they be so convinced of your love for them that no matter what trial, what temptation, what brokenness comes at them, they know that they have a good Father. That in their moments of weakness or vulnerability or failure, they can run to you for forgiveness and grace. that in their moments of attack, they can actually run to you for strength to resist the attack. That in the moments of their life where they look at the places of their life, maybe these, these places that feel so hopeless, but when they look at that, all they see is this opportunity for exchange where you take the ashes and you give us beauty, where you take the despair and you give us joy, where you rebuild on the ruins because that's who you are. So Lord, I don't know their stories, but you do. Reveal your goodness. Reveal your presence. Reveal your heart. Reveal your intentions for them. Bless them, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I think, oh, I'll just leave and you can take it from here. It's not awkward. (laughs) (laughs) All right, can y'all give him a round of applause? That was a, (laughs) as he runs out now.